Let's pray. Father, we have just saying that we want you to speak. And that is the meditation of our hearts. Renew our minds through the hearing of your word, the meditation of your word, and through the proclamation of your word. May we exalt Christ this morning. And may it be for the good of your body and your church and for his and your and the Spirit's exaltation, we pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Please be seated. Please open up your Bibles. We are in John chapter 5. For those that are new to our church, welcome. My name is Pastor Chris Ullman, and we are thrilled you're here. We are on a journey through John, which started over six months ago. So I do not apologize for the speed we go through God's word. For we are soaking in the pools, as it were, of John 5 yet again. And for context, for those that have been here, for those that have not been here, let me give you a a flyby through John 5 as we dive into the end of this. We started with Jesus coming back to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem. And he came to the pool, two pools, five colonnades, and he found one man, a lame man, 38 years, invalid, and he healed one man in the midst of many invalids. And remember, our hearts broke three weeks ago to learn that this invalid that was healed showed no sign of faith, no sign of belief. Instead, what did he do? He turned him in. Jesus, the first time, pursued him, and the second time, found him in the temple and declared who he was to this man. And this man, instead of praising God, decided to tell on God. And so on the Sabbath, the day that the healing took place, the Jewish leaders said, you have broken one of our 39 man-made laws. And uh, in fact, it was number 39 of 39. And so that took us to John 5, 17. And then we entered into a glorious text where Jesus declared equality to the Father as we moved from John 5, 18 and beyond and gave five truth claims of divine equality with the Father. And then we journeyed from equality with God to the two resurrections. Do you remember what they were? The resurrection to life or the resurrection, eternal life or judgment. And so we have a courtroom setting that has been put forward before us this morning as we get to John 5, 33 to 47. So we have five claims of divine equality, two judgments and four witnesses. I will give you a spoiler alert. There's actually five. But we're not going to get to the fifth until a special Sunday and on VBS Sunday. For the fifth witness will be when we have all sorts of children, Lord willing, here and we talk about Paul and Mars Hill and we're going we're gonna to journey into where 
God's word takes us both then and on Easter Sunday with the fifth witness. But for now, we have four witnesses. Traditionally, in a courtroom setting, you have the plaintiff and you have the defendant. And the defendant typically is the one that listens to the charges that are levied against it and responds to it. Jesus takes total control of this courtroom setting. Even though he is on the defensive, he is prosecuting their hearts. And so what we see this morning, and uh, for those that print out the Bible or use highlighters in the Bible, I want to show you my notes even this morning working on this sermon. And what I noticed, which is something that you may lose unless you do something like that, is there's something happening in God's word. And remember I said to you months ago, when you see a word repeated again and again and again, what do we do? Hermeneutically, which is a big word that means how we study the Bible, what do we do? We pay close attention. And so what we see is the word testify, 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 again and again and again, happening to verse 37. But then we see something happening in God's word. And it moves from the word testify to belief. For all of the works, John 20, 31 tell us, all of the signs are meant to elicit. They are meant to produce faith. And faith and belief, have you ever wondered what the difference between faith and belief is? Is it the same? No, it's not. For example, do you believe that Tuesday is Super Tuesday? Yes, it is. Do you have faith in Super Tuesday? Great. Good answer. So, do you understand the difference now? Faith is meant to be reserved for the things of God. We have faith in God because God is unchanging and God's word is unchanging. So, let's open God's word and journey together. I have been given, if I was wise enough and thoughtful enough, I would have called this a three-part sermon series from John 15, 18 to 47. But thank you for your patience in me not figuring that out till now. And in fact, it continues heartbreakingly in the courtroom scene as follows. So the first thing we have to do is to realize that Jesus Christ is marshalling multiple witnesses. And the question that we have to ask ourselves is why? Why doesn't Jesus just say, here is what I tell you? Does he need to do this? Of course he doesn't, but he does. And so the question that we ask ourselves is why? And so Jesus goes back to the book of Deuteronomy without saying it. And here's what Deuteronomy 17 verse 6 says, on the testimony of two witnesses or three, the condemned shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. Deuteronomy 19.15 continues, a single witness shall not rise up against a person regarding any wrongdoing or sin that he commits. Or on the testimony of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Jesus doesn't bring one witness. He's going to bring four witnesses to the scene. And who are the witnesses that Jesus brings? 
Look to God's word. First witness we're going to see is John the Baptist. The second witness we're going to encounter are the works of none other than Jesus himself. The third witness is going to be the Father, God. And the fourth witness is going to be the scriptures themselves. Now, I don't know about you. These are pretty strong witnesses in any courtroom scene, in any time, in any place. But let's start with John the Baptist. John 5, verse 33 continues, you have sent to John. Now, whenever you read John in John's gospel, it's not John the apostle. I'm sure you all know that, but just in case it's confusing, it is John the Baptist. John the apostle, the author, divinely inspired, how does he refer to himself? The one whom Jesus loved. Remember, that's the favorite title that we all wish was on our epitaph, on our tombstones. And in fact, it, it is for those that are in Christ. So here, the person referenced in 32, one verse back, there is another who testifies of me, John 5, 32, and the testimony which he gives about me, capital me, capital H, is true. So 32 and 33 are not the same person. So a lot of your Bibles will have a new header that says the witness of John starting in 33, and I believe they've, this is a right separation of God's word. So who is the witness back in 32? There is another who testifies of me. This is how Jesus enters into this witness, enters into this courtroom scene. Who is the other? Capital he implies divine. This is the father. The father testifies about me, Jesus says. And the man that was sent before me, the one that was in the wilderness, the voice in the wilderness, crying out, calling out, testifying, testifying and witness mean the same thing. The one that was the witness to me in the wilderness, you enjoyed him for a season. But he's now dead. Look to God's word. How do I know that's true? But verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man, but I say these things to you so that he may be saved. He was, past tense, the lamp. Not big L, not big light. He was the lamp, small case, that was burning and shining, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John is dead. And Jesus is now saying to them, the one that you listened to, the one that you enjoyed his testimony for me, ultimately, he's dead. You sent messengers to John the Baptist, and he testified about the truth. And the crowds believed that he was a prophet of God. John the Baptist was a key character. Do you remember how we started in John 1? And you probably thought, my goodness, Pastor Chris is going to spend more time on John the Baptist than Jesus Christ. Not true, but it sure might have felt that way a couple Sundays. For Jesus spent a lot of time talking about John the Baptist. And God's word spent a lot of real estate in the book of John talking about John the Baptist. And here is the testimony that Jesus is honoring this man that has come before him. 
Verse 33, Jesus, you could not physically call John the Baptist to the stand. Why? He's dead. You sent to John. He testified to the truth. He was the lamp. He was shining. And now Jesus is raising the bar in verse 34. From the man to God. So what's happening in terms of the source of witness, if you look carefully to verse 34, but the testimony which I receive is not from man. Jesus is saying, this man testified about me, but I am going to testify about me. Do you see how the argument's changing? If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. 1 John 5, 9. For the testimony of God is this, that he testified concerning his son. Jesus in verse 34 adds words that I missed all week as I was preparing to preach for you up until Wednesday. Look to God's word. But I say these things to you so that, purpose clause, it's a hinna clause. I won't go into the Greek with you, but Jeremy was kind enough to show me other places in scripture where this particular clause is so meaningful, including the purpose statement of the book of John. And what you see here is he says, I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus wants them another opportunity of provision to hear that he's willing to save them. Does it remind you of yourself? How many times have you turned from God, turned against God, sinned against God? You know, what you've noticed in the corporate prayers before service is four elements have emerged in our corporate prayers. You may not even know what's happened, but we did that about a month ago as elders. We want to acknowledge the grandeur of God, which means we look at his attributes. We confess our sins corporately and individually. We provide thanksgiving to God for who he is and what he's done. And then we ask for supplication, meaning we don't come to God first with all of our laundry list of things. What do we want? What do we need? What are we asking for? No, no. We first acknowledge who he is. We praise him. We confess our sins before a holy God. These are the religious leaders that should have understood who was standing in front of them. And what does Jesus do? I say these things to you so that you may be saved. John the Baptist was a bright light for a season. He pointed to the great light of the world. Verse 35, Jesus, look to what it says. He was the lamp that was burning and he was shining and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus, the light of the world, described a high commendation to John the Baptist by calling him a lamp. John was a bright light akin to the reference of Daniel 12, verse 3. God's word says, and those who have insight will shine like the glow of the expanse of the heaven. And they will lead many to righteousness like stars forever and ever. How beautiful. Wouldn't you want that when you're gone? Your testimony is this. I held a candle to the light. I raised it high in the life that was given to me, proclaimed not of my goodness, but of his greatness. The lamp shone bright for a while. 
for John the Baptist, for the Apostle Paul, for the Apostle, Apostle John, for us at Church of the Canyons. It's never about ourselves. It was never about themselves. We are all witnesses holding up Christ, but the light is always and will forever be Christ. John the Baptist got it right. Paul got it right. Do you have it right? See, we're going to die. And I want this to be on our tombstones as a church. For it's not about us, it's about Christ. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. Psalm 1828. God's word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Psalm 119.105. Implying we must look to the word of God to understand how to live for God. We cannot understand how to live if we look inward. We need to look downward and upward. Downward with into our Bibles. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Two weeks ago I said to you, you'll hear sometimes people say this type of comment. I cannot. I'm under bondage. Wrong. It's not true. If you're in Christ, you are no longer under the dominion of Satan. You are a child of light. And therefore, it may be difficult. It may be challenging. It may be a struggle. You may have had difficult things growing up. You may have had a tough week. You may have had challenges that are unique. But you have the ability because he who dwells in you is greater than this world. Therefore, no longer walk as children of darkness, but walk as children of light. John the Baptist was a child of the light. Light and darkness cannot coexist. Where light shines, darkness no longer has dominion. This reality is physically true, but it's also spiritually true. In the beginning, what is the first thing that happened when the light came? What's the first thing? God separated the light from darkness. Have you ever thought of that? Genesis 1.4, light and darkness do not coexist. It doesn't happen in physical creation and it does not happen in spiritual birth. For where there is light, darkness cannot, will not, must not, and is impossible to exist. In the end, God will separate the children of light from the children of darkness, which was our former identities. For you were formerly in darkness, but now you are children of light. Therefore, walk as children of light, Ephesians 5.18. It's an imperative. It's a command. Believers, we're not just known by our speech. We're known by our lives. If we say we are believers, but we live as children of darkness, we lie. And the truth is not in us. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. 1 John 1, 6. But, 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 if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 1, 7. Hear the difference. One verse, oh, what a difference that one verse makes. 
Fellowship implies obedience. You might be thinking, if only I could walk with Jesus. If only I could talk with Jesus. If only I could have been there in this courtroom setting, so to speak. If only I could have heard Jesus, touched Jesus. Then I would have faith. Then I would have stronger faith. Then I would believe. Not so. Faith is not driven by sight. Faith produces sight. That we do not have Christ physically does not mean that we are lacking in any way. Do you believe that? 2 Peter 1.19, we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which we do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. Light and darkness. You understand, God's word is proliferated with this from Genesis 1.4 all the way through to the end of Revelation. Friends, the words and the works of Christ have been recorded so that you may believe. And by believing, you will have eternal life with him. The three key words in this text are testimony, belief, and light, and life. I'll include four. We'll give you a bonus word. So there's four key words that ring around John 5, 33 to 47. And they are testimony seven times, belief six times, life or eternal life four times. Key three words. Jesus' works is point two, John 5, 36. John 5, 36 connects back to verse 32 as an introduction to this section. There is another who testifies about me and the testimony which he gives me is true. Verse 36 continues, but the testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John, John the Baptist, right? For the works, semicolon, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish are the very works that I do. And they testify about me that the Father has sent me. The testimony of the Son of God is greater than a light burning for a season, aren't they? For John's testimony was intended to bear witness about the people and point to the eternal word of God, the eternal light, John 1.15. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 1.29. John is consumed with Christ. It starts in John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Trinity shows up there. The Trinity shows up where? In creation. The Trinity shows up where? In your conversion. The Trinity also shows up at his baptism, which we're going to spend some time and learn about this morning. But for now, we know that the works of God are meant to elicit and produce faith in God. And Jesus' works, he's raising the bar. He's saying, look, John was here for a season. He testified about me, but now I'm testifying about me. And in fact, I'm doing the works that the Father's given me to do. And those works are, in fact, a testimony of the will of God. And so you have this multiplicity of witnesses. The works, what are the works? So that, what's the purpose? So that you may know and understand the Father's in me. And I am in the Father, John 10, 25. John 10, 37. John 10, 38. 
Jesus, every time he does something, gives the reason for the something, which is always the same reason. It's never about the works. It's always about the Father, the will of the Father for the salvation of sinners. The signs, the miracles have been performed in the presence of disciples and recorded in the books so that you may believe in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. If I repeated that every single week until we finish this book, say thank you at the end because that's the purpose statement. That's the reason that we're going through John. We want to hold high Christ. And so we never apologize for repetition on the purpose statement. We're so thankful for it. It keeps us grounded. Verse 36b, for the works that I do testify about me. The Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent testified about me. Third point is the Father. So the Father. The Father sent me, verse 37 continues, and he testified of me. You neither have heard his voice nor have seen his form. Where did God's voice audibly come on the field, so to speak? At his baptism. Matthew 3, 17. And a voice of heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Mark 1. Mark, I love Mark, don't you? The book of Mark, you know they're not written sequentially, right? You, you know that. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John don't come in that order necessarily, but they are put together in that way. But the book of Mark starts in Mark 1. He can't even wait. It's Mark 1, verse 11. Euthos, immediately, Mark's favorite word. And he says, and a voice came from heaven, and you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Luke continues, three synoptic gospels all record Jesus' baptism. It's that important. Luke 3, 22, and the Holy Spirit descended. And don't you love Luke added that little comment that is so significant. Luke adds, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form. In other words, it wasn't a real dove, right? So this is a, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So what is, what is Jesus doing here in verse 37? What he's doing is he is saying to them, I believe two key parts. And the father who sent me testified of me, but you neither heard his voice at any time, nor you have seen his form. So at this point, we're now in Jerusalem. We're standing before the religious leaders. Do you think they had a clue of what happened at his baptism? Oh, yes. They knew what happened at his baptism. This would have been, we think we have wildfires here in the state of California, hearing God's voice, spirit descending, Trinity present, and Jesus' baptism would have gone out like wildfire across this. And all you have to realize is he doesn't even give context of it. All he has to say is you didn't, you weren't there. You didn't hear the father, right? Nor could you, nor have you ever at any point heard from him, nor seen him. Proof of their lack of understanding is an absence of their internal belief. Verse 38, you do not have his word abiding in you. Jesus raises this from head knowledge to heart knowledge. And he says, look, you don't even, not only do you not understand what about the father, 
for you do not believe him whom you sent. Do you see what's happened? Jesus is saying, look, if you don't believe me, then ultimately you don't have faith in him. And so everything that they, their world is going to get rocked. The Jewish leaders studied the scriptures. They failed to recognize the one in whom the scriptures were pointing to. They bear supreme witness. They knew the word of God intellectually, but they have never had their hearts transformed by God. What is the word of God's influence in our lives to look like as a believer? That's the question. So what is the word of God's influence in our lives and in their lives to look like as true believers? I believe the best answer to this is found in Luke 24. You remember the scene? Jesus, at this point in scripture, we're not at the baptism, we're now at the post-resurrection. And the body has, has risen from the dead. And there's two disciples, one named, one unnamed, and they're walking away from Jerusalem, downtrodden. And Jesus comes and pursues them. And they don't recognize him. And he does what? He unpacks scripture and says, this is how scriptures point to me. And God's word says, what happened? The disciples remembered this and they said this, ready? Were not our hearts burning within us? He was speaking to us on the road. And he was explaining scriptures to us. And they got up at that very, very hour. And I want you to pay attention to what they did. They got up that very hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they told others. I think that's it. I think if our hearts understand God's word, then our actions are ignited to follow God's word. So it compels. Here's the scene. They're going this way. Jerusalem's that way. What did they do? Stop, turned, went back, told. That is not the place you want to go back to at this point in history and talk about this guy. Not the place. But they knew that the rest of them had to hear what just happened because it is that significant. So what does a life look like for a true believer? Our hearts burn within us. We understand the scriptures, not because of this. You know that regeneration precedes justification. They're big terms. What does that mean? That means that God chose you while you were still sinners. Your heart that was hardened, your heart that was a rock, he makes a heart of flesh. Jesus is standing in front of people that have hearts that are hardened. Doesn't, we don't know if any of them came to faith. We pray, we pray that they did. But we don't know. Belief and knowledge of the identity of Jesus Christ is meant to compel disciples to turn from their old ways and to tell others of the good news. Perhaps one of the saddest realities in the study of John 5 is the following. I want you to watch the progression as we go through it as we get about three quarters of the way through this message. Here's where we are. Lame man healed 38 years. We don't know if he was healed from birth. We know that it's most of his life. In fact, his age is older than the average person. No sign of faith, no sign of belief. We'll use the word faith. It's more precise. We see that the divine declaration of the five equalities of Jesus to the Father showed no tangible difference to those that heard. We see the resurrection not producing faith. And now we're seeing four witnesses being marshaled out. First is who? 
John the Baptist, two, Jesus works, three, God the Father, four, scriptures. So Jesus now moves the argument and says, if you could have gotten any of these right, this one you should have got. In fact, he's going to take it from all of the scriptures and narrow it down to the Torah. If you could have, if you should have, if you possibly knew all of that intellectual knowledge that you think you have, then surely to goodness, the only one that you would have for sure got right would have been the Torah, the Pentateuch, the five books of who? Moses. And Jesus now draws the net closer and closer and says, look, your head knowledge is not producing your heart knowledge. And so here we go. The final point is the scriptures. The Jewish leader's tragically failure. Scriptures goes all the way from 39 down to verse 47. Their failure to grasp God's truth was no more manifest, no more made known than their approach to the scriptures. The book of John is replete, which means it happens again and again and again with Old Testament references all the way through. Hear this, ready? John 2, verse 17. Jesus drives out the money changers in the temple. Who does Jesus quote? Book of Psalm, verse 9, right? That's what's said, or not what is said of Jesus. Let me reframe what is said. They said, zeal for your house will consume me. John 6, Jesus reminded the Jews of their fathers. They'd eat manna in the wilderness. We're going to get there next week, Lord willing. And Fred will talk about, as we enter into this scene, that there is a, a, an, a typography, which is a big word that basically means a foreshadowing of some of the events that happened then that now appear here. John 6, remind us the Jews, their fathers, had eaten manna in the wilderness. Where did, you, where did we first encounter that? Exodus 16, verse 15. But now Jesus is going to raise it and apply it to himself. For the word, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Often, this is what you see throughout this. Jesus takes the Old Testament reference, clarifies the understanding, and applies it to himself. John 6, to 45, Jesus teaches, no one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. Then he explains it in terms of being personally taught by the Father, and he refers to Isaiah 54, 13. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Jesus adds to the Jewish leaders that all of all people, you should have known the scriptures and who they were pointing toward. You search the scriptures because you think in verse 39 in John chapter 5, you think in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. This is the biggest indictment of all. Everything you've studied, everything from this age all the way up, here, are, here you are, the religious leaders. This is the book. In fact, these are the five books that you should have known better than anybody else. And all of your head knowledge has puffed it up but your heart's far from me. This is clear proof that Jesus spoke to them. The Old Testament was closed. I don't know if you caught that when you read this. When he said here in the book of John, scriptures, he didn't quantify it. Have you noticed that? You may 
miss that fact. It's in fact very, very easy to miss that fact. Look to God's word. What does it say? John 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, look down to 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It's easy to read past that, isn't it? That means that there's a closed canon, a defined set of books at this point, not 400 years later in councils and declarations. When he used the word, you search the scriptures, he would have understood the meaning behind that is that there was an agreed upon, understood, divine, authoritative series of books which are codified, which are closed and here is what they constitute we learn from luke 11:50 to 51 so that the blood of all the prophets since the shed of the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation speaking of the pharisees it says from the blood of abel unto the blood of zechariah second chronicles the first murder to the last murder from the old testament and the hebrew bible ended after guess which book second chronicles so what he has just said here there was no refuting there was no in verse 40 and they said to him oh what do you mean by the scriptures no 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 there's an implicit understanding that this codified this canonized book and now we're going to zone in from all of these books to the writings of moses Okay, that's what's happening behind the scenes here. In response, the Pharisees, religious leaders here, look at the book of Luke. It is recorded that when Jesus is warning them of their hardened, distant hearts, but the Lord said to, to them, this is the Pharisees in Luke eleven thirty nine. Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. The first murder is in Genesis. The last murder is in the book of Second Chronicles. Jesus uses their knowledge to convict their hearts. He says, now, you're far from me. Notice they did not even counter him. They studied the scriptures. They had much knowledge of them. But what was blinding their eyes? Jesus is going to address this spot on in a second. What was blinding their eyes from seeing that the Savior of the world that was standing in front of them wasn't him? Now, you can argue what I just said technically before, regeneration, which would be theologically correct. Doctrinally, there is the doctrine of regeneration, justification, etc., etc. But what does Jesus say here? And you are unwilling to come to me, verse 40, so that you may have life. I do not receive the glory of men, verse 41 continues, but I know you. Jesus looks at their hearts and you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Jesus now takes a CT, a CAT scan and goes like this and goes, you know all of this head knowledge, but your hearts are far from me. And the reason why your hearts are far from me is your hearts are far from God. And if your hearts are far from God, guess what? This is God standing in front of you. It's clear proof that, that, that their hearts were distant. Their prideful, sinful hearts were puffed up in their head knowledge, but their hearts were so far from the love of God. Jesus narrows this 
from the scriptures. And now he's going to zone in and go, this is where you really should have got this right. Verse 43. I have come in the Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Verse 44 continues. But how can you believe when you seek glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only God? I wrote this in my notes. Self-glorification versus humble lives concentrated on God glorification. That's what we're preventing. The love of God was far from them. Verse 45 continues. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one that accuses you is who? Moses. Moses. In whom you have set your hope. Isn't that fascinating? Not in God who rose us moat about, but no, in Moses who you've set your hope. For if, this is a grounding clause, if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote about who? Me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, I don't know about you. What's fascinating to me about this entire account in God's word is there's no rebuttal. There's nothing. It's not like Jesus has just provided four character witnesses and they then say, as a result of this, they were angered and enraged or they decided they wanted to kill him. We know that's all true, right? In their hearts. But what I love about this text is this. They are silent. According to God's word, there's nothing written. And then we're going to leave this courtroom setting to a completely different setting sometime later. Who are you? John confesses, did not deny. I'm not the Christ. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He says, no. Are you a prophet? No. John was the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prophesying of the prophet, capital, the prophet to come. Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up what? A prophet like me among you and the countrymen, and you shall listen to him. John, Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet among who the countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak of them everything that I've commanded. This is the promised prophet. They would have understood all of those Old Testament allusions and references are now being recodified, recast, and he's standing in front of them and saying, I am him, but your hearts are far from me. John 6, 14. Therefore, when the people of God saw the sign, which they had performed, don't want to be a spoiler alert, Fred, to where you're going. They said, this is truly what? The prophet who is to come into the world. Now, you would think that declaration that's coming in 14 verses after this would then engender faith. But we're going to learn very quickly that the belly's full does not mean that they're close to God. Head knowledge, seeing miracles. John 7, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, after they had heard these words, said, what? This is truly the prophet. You catch the theme. 
Deuteronomy, John is replete with this theme. And Jesus is now applying it. John Piper adds this. Jesus came to fulfill all that was written in the law and the prophets. All of it was pointed to him, even where it was not explicitly prophetic. He accomplishes what the law requires. In other words, what were they holding their, what were they putting their hopes in? The law. What did Jesus say on the road to Emmaus? Starting with the writings of Moses and all the way through the prophets, what did Jesus do? Showed them how they pointed to him and their hearts burned within them. He's now taken it from all of that down to the law. And he says, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to ab- not to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it's accomplished. Sproul adds, so here's Jesus. Listen to this. He affirms the authorship of the Pentateuch, Torah, first five books, right? By the hands of Moses. And he says, you call yourselves disciples of Moses? You trust in the teaching of Moses? You exalt the Torah? But you really don't believe it because it was writing about me. Talking about it from Jesus' perspective. But you don't understand that when they describe the tabernacle, they're describing me. When you understand that Moses said in Deuteronomy that they would come another prophet like him, he was referring to me. If you don't believe Moses' teaching, then how are you going to believe my teaching? We're saddened by a lame man, evidenced in his lack of belief. We're shocked by religious leaders getting, what, getting wrong who's in front of them. Now, here's the question that we need to finish with. So what? So how do you and I today at the Church of the Canyons take a tragic account of John 5 and not look to them, but look to us? Two ways. I think for the unbeliever, it's a singular point. Belief. No. Have faith. For without faith you are no different than they were then. You know the identity of Jesus Christ. If you've been here for the last number of weeks, you've heard of the identity of Jesus Christ intellectually. It's been evidenced and recorded in the words of Scripture. You know that he performed miraculous signs and wonders. So, simply believe by faith. Till all men have faith in Christ, their best services are glorious sins, the Puritan Brooks said. Everything you do, I've been with people that do great works that were far from God. I remember one person years ago who took a family picture from us, our family, all for free, did wonderful works for our family. And he was a, a very strong Muslim believer. And he believed that his works in some way contributed to his standing before God. Lots of religions 
believe we contribute or they contribute something to their glorification state. We as Christians believe that we contribute nothing. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sins. Till men have faith in Christ, their best services are but glorious sins. So if you do not believe, I pray you turn this morning in faith to Christ while you can. For the believer, I think there's four applications. And this, I think, is very pointed, and I hope it's helpful to your hearts. Know the Bible is the first. Do you see, Jesus, in his argument, didn't just give lots of content that was not grounded in Scripture. But just knowledge on itself doesn't produce faith. But it does. It is important for our understanding. Looking to whom it is focused on the promised Messiah. Do you know, I've watched people say, I only like the New Testament. Have you ever been around that? Right? The New Testament's good. The Old Testament, God just seemed really angry. And the New Testament, God seems really lovely. Have you ever been around that? Perhaps it's just me. I will argue this. You can see Christ from cover to cover in the Bible. And when you have the skeletal key of who Christ is, divine identity, it unpacks Genesis 1 all the way to the end of Revelation. You read all the way through the Levitical laws, completely different. You read all the way through Exodus, completely different. When you approach Jesus, as we will next week, walking, and you'll see him feeding people and then walking on the water, you have this analogy that goes back and hearkens, oh, doesn't that seem familiar when Moses did this and Moses did this and God did this and the exodus out of this and all of a sudden the skeleton key opens up God's word in a beautiful new way. Christ is from cover to cover. We shall not benefit from reading the Old Testament unless we look for and meditate on the glory of Christ in its pages, John Owen said. Mm. God chooses, let me speak to parents, caregivers, and disciples of older to younger Christians. So here's the category, parents, caregivers, and disciples from older to younger Christians. And now you know from childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.15, train up a child in the way he should go. Now, that does not just mean a young child. That, I believe, actually has a duplicity of meaning, meaning immature believers that they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Proverbs 22.6, every one of us in this room that have been believers for a season should be a disciple of another. Every one of us. It's not the job of the pastor and the elders to disciple this church. It's the job of mature Christians to immature Christians. That's a marching order for all of us. And what do we want to counsel them with? God's word. You notice the two points of application I gave you below that were not my words, but God's word. <coughs> Believe the Bible is the second point. Faith is, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For we live by faith, not by sight. Third point, the love of God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. It starts there. If they loved God, these religious leaders like that, they would have understood who was standing in front of them. 
Luke 10, 27. The love of God to us and our love to him work together to produce holiness. I want to make sure you, that you understood what I just said there. It's later into the service. The love of God to us and our love of God to him work together to produce holiness in us. Terror accomplishes no real obedience. Suspense brings forth no fruit unto holiness. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and withers all of its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Horatius Bonner. Follow the Bible, finally. If you love God, you will obey God. Full stop. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 1 Peter 1, 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Acts 5, 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Love produces obedience. We must not give our assent to the truth of the gospel, but our hearts are far from Christ. A faith which renders is not sight, superficial belief, but it is a redeemer of mankind. Such a faith will form us into subjection and obedience to himself. The best course to prevent falling into the pit is the greatest distance that we keep from sin. He who will be so bold as to attempt to dance upon the brink of the pit may find a woeful experience. It is the righteous thing that you should fall into the pit. Sin is a plague, yes. The greatest and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, there are a few there that tremble at it. Keep a distance from it. Four claims of equality, two resurrections, and, well, five claims, excuse me, two, two resurrections and four witnesses, but there's more to come. There's a fifth that I'm not going to unveil to you today. There's a fifth witness. does not show up yet, but it will. And when it shows up, boy, does it affirm what the other four have just said. So, what say you? They turn from God. But what about you? Let's pray. Father, John 5 is one of the heaviest texts uh, to preach through because we just see such clarity of divine proclamation of the identity of Christ and yet hardened hearts that are far from him. We want to look nothing like that as a church. So let us look inward. Let us count our own sins as more prominent than sins of others. And there's no more offensive sin than our lack of belief in you and following you and living for you. So Lord, we hear your word. Help us to not only hear it, but obey.